Coming to you from cities all over the world, produced in Aotearoa, New Zealand, this is the Places for Good podcast. We bring you the designers, planners, and placemakers who shape the shared spaces of tomorrow, from stories of the past to visions for the future. We talk pride of place wherever you are. I'm your host, Boopsy Moran. Our guest today is passionate about planning cities hand-in-hand with children. She is an urban planner and lawyer driven by the idea of achieving intergenerational justice. As co-founder of the urban consultancy Wasipichanga, her work focuses on creating more playful, inclusive, and livable cities. She is a leader in the Placemaking X network and the Trust and Play European School of Urban Game Design. Currently, she is working on her PhD on child-friendly cities at the Faculty of Spatial Science in the University of Groningen. Having run through the streets of Azuay, Ecuador as a child, she now joins us from her home in the Netherlands. Please welcome Viviana Cordero. Hi, Boopsie. Thank you so much. I'm very, very happy to be here today. Well, let's just start off with a bit more about your recent work through the COVID-19 pandemic um, and how you partnered with organizations like Exploradores de Ciudad. Can you tell us more about your iterative urban planning strategies or how you co-create and collaborate action together with the children in the local area? Yeah, um, well, maybe I, I tell you a little bit uh, why why we started to work with children. Um, because I am actually a lawyer, so I'm not an architect or an urban planner <laughs> at this point. Um, and when I started uh, law, I really did it because I wanted, in a way, to achieve justice for people, you know, a uh, very uh, idealistic uh, way to, to choose what you study. Uh, and then I started working in law very, very early as well. But I realized that, well, this was not really always justice. Like uh, it's uh, sometimes about who knows the law better and can play better with it, or you only respond to the players that can really pay a lawyer, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was really not entirely happy with it, but most of my friends uh, are architects. And at that time they told me, hey, let's go for a, uh, for a workshop of architecture. And I'm like, what am I going to do there? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and they're like, no, it doesn't matter. Then we're going to travel through Central America. So you just like stand there for 10 days and then we'll <laughs> see, right? But when I went, uh, this workshop was about um, yeah, regenerating public spaces and bring people together. And uh, we were in Nicaragua. And the moment we arrived, there was a big earthquake. So the public spaces that we created really marked a difference for the people there and for the communities, although we build them in 10 days, you know. Uh, So I thought like, oh, my God, like this is justice. Like I really want to to work on this. And we started to do these uh, public spaces activations or interventions in the city. And we realized that uh, children are the first to come curious to know, hey, what are you doing? And so you have to explain and involve them. But there is already this wheel to understand what's happening. And so we decided to take this approach and work with children. And of course, always in public space. So I think for many of the people that work on this field, the pandemic was a, a moment of shock like if we cannot go out what what is going to happen right mm. uh and and it took us a time to to think uh what mm. are we going to do but i really love the work of exploradores de la ciudad they normally also uh, work on the public space with children and they involve them um well basically they are part of the design process uh in all its stages But exploradores noticed that, especially in Latin America, uh, the housing conditions sometimes are quite tough. Uh, Children do not have a space for their own, for example, of course. They have to live with a lot of people. Uh, The parents were in a very stressful situation. So how do we help those children to to cope? And uh, they created an awesome guide uh, to explore your house. So one of the activities, for example, was to uh, build your own uh, shed, kind of a fort uh, in the house. And when you feel mad or when your parents are stressed, 
you just go there, you read a book, you put there your favorite stuff. And it's a spatial solution to a very psychological situation, right? So this was very beautiful, I think. And also the guide, of course, gave ideas on how to um, understand COVID better, ideas on how to play in your house. And uh, so we partnered with them because they did the guide in Spanish. Mm-hmm. And our team is very multidisciplinary, very international. Uh, and also we work with placemaking Europe kids. Uh, and we managed to translate the guide to other 10 languages wow. uh, and to disseminate it like that, right? So that more people, more children could have access to the guide. So uh, I think almost everybody that I know in the pandemic managed to to translate their work in a way that it could still reach children. And I think that's very powerful, you know? Well, because if there's no public space, you're kind of opening it up for in their home. So you're using that spatial design aspects that you have from placemaking and just responding to the pandemic, I guess, as best you can, even though you still want to create. And that's really neat work. And so um, how did you, so what do you do with, Steepo, and when you partner with them, what have you done for children in Hall in the Netherlands lately? Um, well, when we partner with Steepo for two specific projects, uh, the first time uh, I work with them to edit the book *The City at I Level for Kids*, which I really recommend that people uh, download. Uh, it's online; it's for free, and basically gathers good practices from around the world uh, of people who has work with children um, and space. Uh, and what we, what we did in this partnership is to create uh, a guide that will give you a step-by-step uh, process so that you can also apply some of the child-friendly principles uh, in your city. And maybe the nicest part about this guide is that the first step is awareness. So it tells you how you can bring people together. Uh, It can be the mayor, it can be public servants, it can be yourself, you know, if you've really never thought about how to include children in the public space or urban planning, like what am I going to do? And uh, it gives you different exercises, like very practical exercises um, that you can do to create that first awareness. So for example, you go out with a with a rise of bag of five kilos, which is you know <laughs> the weight of a child, and uh, and then you you do your normal walk to the supermarket, you know, and you see if it's possible or not. If you need more places to sit on the way, if the you imagine that the rise bag cries at some point, of course. <laughs> but uh, this is small small steps that really creates just a different level of awareness through games, through through playfulness. Um, so that then you are like, well, okay, maybe children do have something different to say when we like, are. Yeah, and I like the word awareness rather than perspective, because perspective is quite a big word, whereas you really are trying to make the whole city and the mayor and planners aware of the barriers across the journey or barriers of public space. And if you just say, look at it from my perspective, it's not quite as capturing as awareness. Yeah, exactly. It's um, it's a bit weird to see that everybody goes through childhood, right? Still, everybody has a different perspective about childhood. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and and you lived it different, and we lived in different times as well, right? So the way childhood evolves is very complex, um, and it's very dynamic. So. I think, yes, you're right. Like the word awareness can really take all that into account. Mm. And sometimes, um, well, when, if you don't have a child, it's also harder to really imagine how your world is every day with a child, right? Mm. So, but if you're planning, you're planning for children, you're planning for families. And uh, to me, it was very impactful. I heard once a study in Paul, in, yeah, in, Poland, yeah, I think. Poland, yeah, but I wanted to remember the city. I think it was Barso, mm-hmm. but um, the the main study was that they took all the public servants from the municipality, uh, 
and ask them uh, small questions like, who takes this decision at your house, for example? What do you wear every day? Uh, where do you go on holidays? Uh, what car are you going to buy? For example, what are you going to eat for dinner? And 98% of the public servants says that at least they ask their children for all those things, right? They're, they're, individual lives evolve around that. Uh, but when they ask, yeah, now how much uh, do you ask children in your work about what you're gonna do in the city? Ah. It was less than 1%, you know? So even if your life is 98% affected by, yes. by children, by your own children and so on, it's uh, hard for us to extrapolate it yet into our working style and you even this public servant that, that you can imagine wakes up at 7 a.m needs to feed them ch the children then take them to one school then the other probably to the kindergarten then uh, pick them up uh, mm. after work take them to dance lessons swimming lessons or to a caregiver like i don't know the grandparents or whatever then go shopping then come back and if they're chain of mobility is very difficult they are wasting precious times with their children right that they know and they're aware of and they don't like mm. but they don't know yet that urban planning can be one of the things that can change that even mm. as urban planners sometimes so I think awareness is really a first step for all of us to to at least bring this to the table and so then when you were starting off in this kind of work in Ecuador, did you do similar type of projects co-creating there before you moved to the Netherlands? Uh, yes, so we started in 2014 and our first project was actually a park for children uh, in a very, very small town. Uh, we went there assessing the place and thinking, well, they need a market because there was no space for it. And they, in that town, they were all agriculture. So they needed to take their products out. Uh, but then we went to the school and I, I mean, we went all around and there was really no place for them to be, you know? And the school was broke, like the windows were broken. The staircase didn't exist. It was a mess. And there were children like all around, like without anything to do. and. We ask the mayor, like, what's one of the biggest problems of the town? And they're like, well, that when children are 12, they move out. Oh, wow. They move to the sea. There's really nothing to do here. And we thought like, well, and what, what is it here to do if you think they should stay, right? And he said, well, there are very nice touristic places. Actually, these big rocks that... Uh, that had different shapes, wow. like a big beard and like really amazing places that I've also never seen before, actually. And it was three <laughs> hours away from my house. Um, but they didn't know how to communicate that, right? Mm -hmm. So we asked the children how much did they know about these places? And they also didn't know about these places. <laughs> <laughs> so the idea was to create um, a park, a playground for them uh that represented each of those places so we went with the children to see these these rock formations to see these touristic places mm -hmm. and then we designed the games with them the only thing we had was old tires that was like oh, the nice. main thing and old structures from the previously existent uh playground uh, but we we did things you know a river that you could jump uh, we do yeah uh, like um, there is this rock that moves around and it seems like it's going to fall, but it doesn't. <laughs> so we also had like sort of a swing that it seemed like you were going to fall, but yeah. you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> and we created all these with the children, you know? Yeah. And so at the end of the day, they were the ones that could transmit this message of in my town, you will find this. So even when they're 12, if they have to move to the city, uh, because it's kind of a more rural area, they will know these things and they will have more ideas on how to bring people back uh, for these touristic activities. So that was the first project we had. Mm -hmm. 
And what it was brought funny. you? What brought you there? So if it's three hours from your home and you're a lawyer, <laughs> and you're you're thinking I want to do something just bring justice to open spaces and play, I end up three hours created this park with children. Like, what is the path between that to that project? Well, um, Wasipichanga was born as a very and it still is a very transdisciplinary team. So uh, since then. Basically, we were freshly graduated from university, but uh, when we were in university, we had the power to go out and say, as a student, we want to do this in the city and we want to change these and that. And we could contact the mayor and uh, different politicians and say, well, the students request that you do these or that, you know, it was very powerful. Mm. Uh, when we left university, it's like, well, now who are we, you know, <laughs> and really? And it took us some time to really realize, well, we are citizens. We can ask for things, right? Uh, and we got together. We were lawyers, architects, designers, educators, um, nutritioners, economists. We were really a big group of people that met in university and said, like, let's do something together and let's do it from this very transdisciplinary universe we live in. So we yes. knew we wanted to do something in public space because that reached everybody. But we knew we didn't want to do it from a solely architectural perspective mm -hmm. because we wanted to show that we are all citizens and that's mm -hmm. what we what we want to portray. So, um, well, long story short, <laughs> we all this group went together to the uh, to the government of Asuai, which is the province, and said, "Give us the most needed communities that you have, ah. and we're going to do a project with with them." So that's how we reached. It was far. But oh, wow. And the <laughs> Wasapichanga, what's that name mean? Oh, um, well, uh, the name means like the housewarming party. Oh, and, really? Uh, yeah, for us, it's very nice because it comes from uh, Quichua, which is yeah. the, the language of the Incas and you know, previous indigenous uh, communities. Mm -hmm. Still, there are indigenous communities that speak the language. Uh, but what happens in those communities is that they never build their houses alone, you know, like mm -hmm. they never build it for themselves. It's like all the community gets together and first we'll build together your house, then my house, then someone else's house. Oh, nice. Exactly. So the moment that the house is done, it is a celebration for everyone, right? Uh, yep. So Wasi means uh, house. Uh, Pachanga is also a word that we use for party, but the wasipichanga, some places they call it wasipichana, uh, that is the housewarming party, the celebration that oh, we did it together. So I think for us, it's really important to show like first, it comes from our roots, but also, you know, this great idea of, of celebrating uh, spaces that were made by the community. So my question is, um, if you were mayor, so let's say doing that project you did in the playground and, and doing projects in the Netherlands, if you were mayor of your city, so if you couldn't travel three hours to that village and you could do your home that you went to university at or where you're working and living now, um, what radical revisions might you do or immediate policy changes would you like to implement from your practice that you've learned so far? I think that uh, the most radical change that you can make for children is giving them and their caregivers voices and to do that effectively you need to put a budget for them to choose uh, i was really amazed once that i heard the mayor of tirana he's probably very famous on this child friendly cities uh, uh, stream let's say but um, he said well I realized that one third of the children uh, or one third of the population in Tirana are children. Wow. So one third of the budget is going to go for them. And I'm going to really do things for children. And even as a parent and an adult at that city, it's, you're going to be benefited, right? So you're never going to say no to a proposal like that. And I think it's effective. Like if you really commit this percentage of budget to that percentage of the population, uh, it's a way for you to at least start thinking about how you're going to fulfill that commitment, right? <laughs> yes, I wonder what that looks like, right? So let's say 
I'm giving one third of the budget and the budget is $100,000. So one third is $30,000. I'm sure it's more money, but what, where do you gather the kids? How do you get the schools on board? And how do you, for us, it's very hard here in New Zealand to get permissions from the parents to include, like, what are, do you have any tricks of including children in your studies or how quickly do you give the authority signature? I always need to remember that first, because if let's say you're taking photographs of the kids on, on in a location or in a walk, how do you use that for the report? These are all very pra- practical, but for us in New Zealand, some of our biggest barriers. Yeah. Um, well, I think that uh, first of all, well, not all the budget needs to be participatory. That is also something real that we have to acknowledge. Participation with children is not always easy to facilitate. Not uh, everybody also knows how to do it. And even when you know how to do it, you don't always know how it's going to go. Yes. Maybe the most important thing is to know that the participatory processes are like that, complex and diverse, not only with children, they are the same with adults. That's the main difference that we need to acknowledge. You know, it's not about... Oh, participating with children is going to be impossible. It's the same time, energy, and effort that you do it with adults. Mm. Uh, and I feel like I interrupted your story for your first project. So if you designed all the swings with the students, what in the end, was that the park they got? I'm yes, back. yes. Uh, we built it together. It uh-huh. was actually very interesting because... Okay, you mentioned this, that it's very hard to reach the students. And uh, in a way, how we worked before was Mm -hmm. actually very easy because we just started doing something and the children are around and they're like, what are you doing? And they come to us, you know, we are strangers. (laughs) Yes, but but if we explain to them, uh, well, first, then you can see that children are allowed to be out alone you know in those specific places and this happens mostly in rural areas it's way harder to do these projects directly in the city i have to admit Mm -hmm. but in rural areas where we've had these experiences what happens is that they really come they're curious they say like well what are you doing and then if you manage to explain them the message in the most simple way they will take it to their houses so actually the first methodology that we design was a methodology about children as messengers Mm. of urban planning. So we could explain our project, the main objectives, and then they will go to the parents and say, well, or uncles, grandparents, and say, well, there's this group of people there in the park. They're trying to do something. We should go. I'm curious. And then we gather the whole community together. It was funny in the first project (laughs) that we did because... We were building it ourselves, but we've never built much before, you know, (laughs) and we were trying to dig and we were like wasting so much time. And then the kids came and they were like, oh, you're doing it wrong. Like I've seen my dad, he does it like this. And then the dad came and things that was taking us like, I don't know, were taking us two hours. The dad Mm -hmm. did it 10 minutes. So (laughs) mainly the community at some point joined not only because it was important but because they see it so relevant I mean they saw it that for them they were so relevant for the project at every stage and finally we did it together and mainly the, the, the nicest part of that project I think was not the playground itself mm-hmm. but I told you at the beginning that the school had uh, these windows that were broken and no staircase. It was very hard to go up. And we came back like one month later and it was all done, right? And we asked them like, oh, so finally you you were heard by the municipality and the government. Did they come to change it? Because they were telling us that that they called like for a year to the government Mm -hmm. to change these things. And they're like, no, we realized we could do it ourselves. Like you came here, you did a park in one weekend or two. Why haven't we changed the windows, you know? Like, <laughs> and they did that and they build a staircase themselves. They're organized to, to do that. So I think that is the kind of, of push that you can give to people. Yeah. I sometimes struggle also with the with this notion because governments are taking even more and more uh, this position of 
participation or civic uh, interaction or initiatives can take away some of our responsibilities, you know, yes. and I don't think that is the case, specifically, for example, in this community that they're very poor, they manage to get the money for the windows and so on, but it's not their responsibility. It is still the state's responsibility. Yes. So it's nice to know that they can do it and solve their problems fast, but how can we make sure that the government doesn't, you know, just get take away advantage or yeah. not yeah, exactly. take some responsibility. So while you were talking about schools in your later currently you do a little bit of safer routes to and from school for high school and can you tell me more about those more current projects where you're working on safer routes yes uh so actually these will also reply a little bit of the of the question before of what to do when you are a mayor yeah <laughs> i think that mobility and play are probably the uh, most direct spatial solutions to be more tough-friendly. So if you can say mm -hmm. there is a lot of mayors or um, cities that think that being child-friendly is having a lot of playgrounds or having these big playgrounds <laughs> somewhere, yes. the mega parts that they call, I think that it's not the case. You know, a real child-friendly city is where your child can play almost everywhere. So you can open the door of your house and there is the street and you think it's safe for your child to play there. That is a real child-friendly city where yeah. you have to walk to the supermarket with your children and they can go on their skates or their bike. That is a real child-friendly city when they can find opportunities for play in every space. Of course, there will always be a few spaces that, okay, maybe they're not going to be the best, but in general, mobility and providing children to have a playful independent safe mobility mm. says a lot about what the children is doing for them and their caretakers so i think um that's very important and that's what we also wanted to portray in this um in this project that we started in in ecuador right now mm -hmm. um so the project is it has two components mainly mm -hmm. one is urban pedagogy and one is uh, active mobility. So what we wanted to do is really to teach children. In this case, they're not very little. They are 14 to 16, so teenagers. But we wanted to teach them about uh, basic notions of urban planning, public space, uh, government, or well, governance in general, active mobility, and how can they use placemaking tools or tactical urbanism tools to build their public space uh, for themselves, you know. And can I step back one step in that? Did they approach Wasapichanga, or did you, maybe living in the Netherlands, seeing that age group independently traveling, go, how can I bring this experience back in Ecuador? Or did they approach you and say, our kids are unsafe in the afternoons, especially young adults? Like, where did the the idea spark and how did you reach those children that you're currently working with on this project? We, we reach directly the school uh, and we reach the school with the idea of we want to talk to the children and identify a problem, spatial problem around this school that we can solve with them. So we can teach them a little bit um, about how several tools can help you either gather attention of the government to say, well, okay, we have a problem here, do something, or to solve the problem themselves and to uh, use this opportunity to connect also children with the, with the municipal government and with um, urban planners and so on. So the school said yes. Um, how we chose the school was uh, mostly because we already kind of knew the traffic problem that uh, we have with schools in, in this specific city, but in Ecuador in general, and they come from a bigger problem. So in Ecuador, you don't go to the school in your neighborhood. You can go to any school you want. Uh, and that means that uh, people commute a lot wow, <laughs> to school. Yes. When I was little, I used to go 40 minutes, 50 minutes in a bus to the other side of the city. Um, but also the people that commute the most 
are the people in private schools, mm -hmm. that it's 30% of children, let's say, in this specific city. But these 30% of children in private schools are causing 70% of the traffic Whoa. at this hour. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so then it's a, a real target, you know. And I've been actually very inspired by the cases in New Zealand because most of the literature most of the um, empirical studies on these topics are in New Zealand, oh, like interesting. From, from all topics. And, uh, and there is this uh, professor, uh, Paul Tranter, he also talks about, he talks about New Zealand and Australia, but he talks about how parents say that they want to drive their children to school, to the door of the school, mm. <laughs> because that is the safest thing they can do for their children. Yes. Still, you know, still, children are more prompt to be in a car accident around their school because then the other parents are very late for their jobs and then they leave their children and the rest, they go like, you know, super fast and then they cause another accident. Yeah, so parents are dangerous. being the same, exactly, <laughs> the same cause. And we wanted to really stop these in Ecuador and so we chose this school because it was private, mm. because it had all these cars and it was in a main um, avenue that everybody uses in the city. There are two schools actually in that uh, specific uh, uh, street. Uh, Did but you already have in mind ways you would fix it before even and hoping that the kids will just come up with it on their own or were you going completely random? We had some ideas in mind in the sense that we knew that mobility was the problem, for example, and we knew examples around the world that we could use, but we went very flexible because if the children found another problem that, let's say, is not mobility, is identity, is green spaces, is cultural spaces, then there's something we cannot see and we have to go for what they say. Mm. So we never really push them into a mobility uh, yeah, project, mm -hmm. they decided themselves from a more open uh, portfolio of problems. In a way. And where are you in this project? Are you in the middle, in the end, or just starting? So we are piloting this project, but is um, the second stage of the pilot. Mm -hmm. uh, so during the pandemic, we gave around 25 workshops to the children about this. Uh, 25, and how long does each one run? Uh, it's one hour, but it's, uh, so they have one every week. Same group and of students or different groups of students? Same group of students. Okay. Uh, so there are a hundred students and yeah. It's amazing. I said, wow, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now there are a hundred students and, uh, we found with the school that they have to do, um, community project during their school track. That is Perfect. two years. So it was perfect because then we said, okay, we can do it, you know, one, one year uh, theoretical, one year more practical, or we can see how it goes, but we can really fit this program into a long-term relationship with the children, you know? So it's not like a three-hour workshop and then you go away. This was like a really a long-term commitment with the children to find these solutions. Uh, so we can we could fit this into their uh, official education program. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so we gave uh, 25 um, workshops. This was all during COVID, so they were not going to school. It was all online. We were in the Netherlands. They were there. So a bit... Uh, all in uh, Spanish, I'm sure. All in Spanish, yes. <laughs> and then my, who's funding the workshop time? Uh, the first part of the, of the project, it was funded by us and the mm -hmm. school. Oh, nice. Uh, and the second part of the project is being funded by the, um, embassy of France in Ecuador. Wow. Uh, so we, cause they, that they is that people don't realize how creative placemakers and these people that are in multidisciplinary solutions work. Obviously, I think the transport agency should be funding this work because you're feeding into how to improve better practices in their specific field. However, this isn't the case. In most projects, the money is coming from a very diverse field of people who are really thinking out of the box and working together. So 
it's important, I think, for people to understand that when we are the instigator of our own change, where the money comes from to pay for the time it takes to do the practices that you're doing, such as 25 workshops, and then a second stage, the funding comes from a diverse range of places. Yeah, uh, I think it's important what you mentioned about the role of the municipality, because what we feel sometimes, we have the municipality on board and they know every step you know, that we've been doing and they're willing to also commit to the maintenance and um, to the replicability of the project because the idea is to, at this point, well, what we've, uh, the solution we found out with the yeah. children is that we will diversify the traffic. We know that they cannot really come all the way walking from their houses, it's like two hours. Yes. <laughs> but uh, what we can do is really to, pinpoint some hop-on, hop-off stations, build them in a playful, very creative way, uh, build them 400 to 600 meters radius around the school, and then build these uh, safe routes of 600 meters to the school that they can take, mm -hmm. and we will diversify the traffic in that sense. But if you draw this uh, circumference of 600 meters around every school in that area or in the city itself, you will have a child-friendly city. You will have safe routes to schools everywhere. That means children have a safe passage to who, wherever they want to go uh, in the city. So the, the municipalities see this potential and say, well, yes, this is definitely a replicability um, opportunity. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, we want to see the pilot. We want to monitor it. We want to sometimes discuss with you certain indicators that we can take over uh, so we have this constant uh, co-creation, mm -hmm. but to be honest, there is never the money, you know, yes, and yes. sometimes <laughs> it's not there, it's true, but sometimes also uh, we've seen this in many municipalities, it's a fear of letting go, you know, mm. and maybe it's a political thing as well, but it's like, yes, we can support them to see how it goes. The responsibility is on them. So if it mm. goes wrong, people doesn't like it. It was not the municipality's project. It was someone else's project. Yes. If it goes right, then the municipality takes over. And then we start paying, but they don't start paying us, for example, to keep yes. doing it. They pay their public servants to copy the, the pilot. Yes. And this happens a lot in every Always. municipality. Yes. I think it's a mistake not to be able to see each other as allies. This fear of the private sector or the civic society doing something in the public sector, um, it's something that we have to get rid of. <laughs> it, it's really probably a lot of responsibility on the initiators and a lot less of the benefits of scaling it up. and not because we want to benefit from it, uh, because I think that a lot of placemakers uh, or people in this practice is trying to make their things replicable and they're aware that they're not going to be able to take over all the projects. So if other, we, that's why we're creating so many manuals. That's why we're doing so many webinars and sharing knowledge because we want others to do it as well and take over it. But when you take it over in a way that it's not collaborative, mm you miss a lot of what you could learn from having the people on board all the time. To bridge that student to the actual person that are in the legislative roles is very tricky, complex. It, it is, it is. And uh, you can see you're in New Zealand. This project is in Ecuador. I'm in the Netherlands. And in all these places, you have the same problem. <laughs> How do we bridge this to stakeholders in a way that it's effective. And I'm thinking, for instance, in the school we're working in, in the school that put a lot of resources also to do this, of course they're benefited by it, but the neighborhood is benefited by it. But how much could the municipality do, you know, if they could treasure these teachers that have been with us along the way, that know the process, that know the, the good parts and the bad parts of it, and they could go to the public schools to teach this same thing, for example, right? Um, but instead, I think that there is not yet a vision for that. 
not always is that you know the municipality just takes over the project because they think they can do it better it's just there's no really a vision on how to collaborate mm. um and this is something we all have to work together and this is something that uh, i think place making as a movement mm-hmm. is pushing for what what is your ideal group of a citizen group let's say you were creating a citizen group that would work its way through government to mitigate change who are some of your key players that would be really helpful to work alongside you on a project uh, from my experience schools are always a great ally um, it's still uh, tricky in some countries yes to reach to the to the children to the parents um, to the government that uh, probably uh, yeah, runs the school, but it's worth it. It's worth it because children have the time to be involved in a long-term process. They have exactly all the knowledge or you can get knowledge from the adults through them. So for example, in this specific project, we teach children how, or teenagers, but we teach them how to collect data. We send them with full surveys to talk to the neighbors. Now they know the neighbors that they've never seen before, even though they go to the same place every day. Um, they survey their parents. They The homework is to walk around with their parents and write down what they like, what they don't like. So it's a lot of homework for the parents, I have to say. <laughs> but I think that uh, the school is a community that in a small way represents a city, you know? And, uh, and we can, share the knowledge from that community through schools so they are a very strong ally Uh, and of course the municipality always has to be there i know the municipality don't always have the resources but what the municipality needs to understand from these processes Mm -hmm. is that it's better to fail in one of these community participatory processes that are cheap that are not necessarily fast, but that are not a mega infrastructure project, you know, Uh, and redo it and redo it and redo it through different tools of placemaking, of collaboration, of workshops, of co-creation, than saying, I'm going to do this mega park, I'm going to call these Mm. uh, five architectural firms, I'm going to pay 10 millions for it, and then after five years on construction, realize that nobody likes the park and nobody mm. goes to the park, you know, which happens a lot. So the way that the money is moving in the municipalities for the same topics needs to change. And the way partnerships move towards these topics needs to change towards these more neighborhood oriented in which you really bring in the community. I think that through schools is one of the easiest things. And the second partner is to really have um, uh, professionals that are on ground doing stuff. And you can have also the architecture of firms, the big private infrastructure sector. But how can we do it together? You know, not that the brief. Yeah, the brief is made by the. Yeah, the brief can be made by the neighborhood for the designer, something like this. But you before I forget, that's it. That was what the word I was looking for. We as placemakers and we as practitioners our job is to somehow convince municipalities to fund failures and be proud of them. And that is it. Fund the failures. I call it a trial failure uh, placemaking or tactical urbanism. It's going to be at the very least half of the people will not be happy with whatever is about to happen. But the big picture is we're designing for neighbors, not the idea like the big, 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 it's not a big picture of a park. It's a big vision, right? So the vision that's missing, I think, from when you're talking about a mayor or someone in municipality, have you ever had a leader within planning, within a municipality, within a transport agency that really understood this idea of funding an iterative process and really got behind you? Can you think of an instance from 2014 to today, either it's your story or one you heard of where someone was with the school or met a student and got so excited and said, I'm going to help you get there. Do you have any of those type of stories? Um, we did a project in, in Bolivia mm-hmm. that uh, I really liked because uh, it was, again, this 10-day workshop, you know, of doing something. 
And this was for architects specifically. Uh, so it was funded by the university, the faculty of architecture, but we had a hundred architecture students from all Latin America, like from 20 countries. Wow. You know? <laughs> and we were assigned, uh, well, after my first architectural workshop in which I was there, like not being an architect at all, you know, not understanding anything. Um, this was a, a second version of that where I was actually uh, a tutor because they realized how in the first workshop, my crazy ideas of not being an architect gave them a different perspective. Ah. So in the second one, they invited Wasipichanga as tutors to show our experience as non-architects <laughs> um, to, to create the public spaces. So this was funded by the university. Uh, these hundred students went, we were tutoring a few, but we were divided in different um, small towns. So we were divided in three towns and each group of 30 students had to do something. Uh, what we were doing is regenerating the public space around the cemetery, mainly because that was the place where people gathered in that town, but it had nothing. It didn't have benches, it didn't have um, shade, it didn't have anything and one of the it was let's say all around the, the the cemetery so there were four plots and one of the plots was in front of the school and that plot was completely full of garbage like a wow. big garbage <laughs> not only the garbage that you put you know like from your house but construction materials like a lot of garbage and uh, this was again a very small rural area but of course the the architects said we are not going to to use that because we are not going to be able to clean it on time like it, we have to leave it as it is and use the other plots and the architects were doing everything on the other plots building designing super happy and the children came every day <laughs> after school to see what is happening you know and so we were telling, we were just telling the children what is happening. We'll sit down and draw with them. What do you think this architect is going to make? What do you think these other guys going to make? What do you need? What would you like? We were literally just playing, but they will come every single day. By the fifth or sixth day, the children disappear. They didn't come anymore, you know? The architects were all like, what happened? I think that we did something wrong or they're not letting them come. It's maybe dangerous because of the building site or whatever. <laughs> and uh, we didn't see the children anymore, you know, until the day that we finished the construction. And this was this community um, yeah, celebration as well. This was on the 10th or 11th day. And the moment that we inaugurated, the, the people from school come with the children and there was this beautiful child wearing a suit that was going to give a speech about the public space. And then he said, well, um, I really want to thank you. We as children are inspired. We really like what you did. And we want to show you something. We also have a surprise for you. They take us all around to the other plot that was full of garbage. And then there was a plaza where better made than the one from the architect. I'm not surprised. <laughs> they built really a beautiful public space with benches, with places to play, with shade. Like they replicated what the architects were trying to do, you know, in these 10 days. In four days, they clean all the garbage that the architects disregarded. They said it is not possible without heavy machinery. <laughs> And could you tell each plot? Was it easy to tell that there was each person was assigned? So somehow the students understood that each person was assigned an area and they basically became part of the project. Yeah, they basically became part of the project. But it was funny that no architect ever went back to that plot to see, hey, the children are working or something, right? They were so focused on their plot. And the yeah. day of the day they took us and really that was a better design and <laughs> nicer place than the wow. other ones, you know? It was very funny. And uh, a few of us from the transdisciplinary team we knew that the children were doing that because the teachers came to us. Okay. None of us were the architects, it was the educators, you know, that mm -hmm. we were like running around telling people what was happening. And um, 
And a few of us knew, but the whole bunch of architects, they didn't know. And, uh, and this is already six years ago, mm -hmm. I think. So as I told you at the very beginning, they divided us in three towns. So in one of the towns, we still have three plots, but we still had three different projects in three towns. Mm -hmm. And uh, one year ago, we got a picture from the municipality and so on, saying that they are renovating the place that, that the children did and that we did in that town. But the other two towns who won international awards of design, they are not there anymore because wow. the community doesn't care about them they're not, yeah because one it's a mega architect versus a whole community movement exactly and they are beautiful places you know that for the first 10 days everybody was there as i told you they won international prizes and they were amazing but there is this missing piece right of how co-creation yeah co-creation and our project with the children, it's still there. It's called the place of everyone because we told the children, this should be called the children's place. And they're like, no, 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 no. This is the place for everyone. <laughs> so they named it like that. And it's still there. And the municipality has this, um, also this push to, to maintain it. Okay. And so... This is kind of a big answer to to a very uh, to a smaller question that you ask of uh, have you seen someone supporting it in a way that it goes long term? Um, it sometimes take a, takes a first person to support it directly. Like in our case, let's say the the embassy of France makes it a lot easier for us. But I think that what really makes a project successful long term is that the community is involved from the beginning. So it doesn't matter how much money you have or how many sponsors you have. If the co-creational piece is not there, it's harder to support. It's not impossible, but it's way harder to support. And if the community is there, you will find the sponsors or the community will be able to pressure the government to sponsor it, mm -hmm. you know? So I think that is the, the fundamental piece. And in this case, it was the school because the school took it so deep into their roots that the municipality doesn't even think that they have an option not to maintain the place, you know, yes. because the children are sitting there like this is our place and now we need this and you have to do it. Yeah, and so there's, two, there's, there's two responsibilities for your municipality, right, that they... Um, by avoiding this participatory project, they're also avoiding the responsibility during the build of, if, especially if it's iterative and it's a trial, if it goes wrong and the news, so they avoid it that way. And then they really don't like operating costs. They really, really are avoiding once this project is built, they always ask who's going to maintain it, who's going to keep it operating, who's going to empty the new rubbish bins, who's going to make sure the shade sales aren't deteriorating. Do you, how do you, in your participatory project, explain to the designers that are children the high cost of some of that, that you need a quality material because you want it to last 10 years. And also when they're making budgets or have ideas for what kind of spaces they're making or improving, let's say the drop-off zones in your latest project, how do they understand how they're going to keep it clean and that part of the budget? How do you explain that to them? So part of the 25 workshops that we give is for them to make the budget of the project <laughs> we are very cruel sometimes but we say <laughs> yes i mean how much do you think it's gonna cost and who's gonna give the money how are we gonna get the money last year even they did like a, uh, a game uh, contest and they also managed to get like a different prices uh, i don't know the word in english for this but you know when you get prices from different people then uh -huh. you sell the tickets and then raffle somewhere. a raffle a raffle yes so they organize a oh, raffle they already fundraise and to fundraise and to pay for the paintings that we were going to use at that stage because we had no idea if we were going to get any sponsorship and uh, and I mean, yeah, they knew, okay, we need maybe three thousand mm dollars. -hmm. We got three hundred, so not not close to it. <laughs> but we knew we were gonna make it happen, you know, and yes. the, I don't know, we'll find out the ways. And if not, they also knew why not. And I think that's very important, you know, because you said the expectation was we've done a beautiful job, 
we are all in this with these conditions so how can we make it happen but most importantly if it doesn't we've done a lot and we know you everybody's aware of the reason of why we didn't get there so well at the end they, yeah, we, we did a first part with those 300 and so on. But and these workshops, are they like Creative Commons? So once you work through them, do you share it with other agencies? But or do you keep that kind of process as part of your your organizations? Uh, we no, actually, well, we're willing to share them. Uh, it's just we are testing them. You yes. know, it's a, it's a really a beta version at this point. Uh, but the, 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 the final outcome of the project is to have a replicability guide with all the methodology for the urban pedagogy part. Like, what is it that we taught the children? What is it that we got from them? Mm. What were the lessons learned about this? And also, we are trying to add to that the, the urban design principles that we use in active mobility and playful and safe routes. Of course, the urban principles... I know we call them principles, yeah. but that is always very contextual. The methodology is also contextual, but the methodology is a step-by-step thing that it's easier to adapt for you. Mm-hmm. And you can see the result in our case, and you can see the design result in our case as well. So we are still figuring out what could be something that everybody could use in every geography. And you have to uh, translate it too, right? Because the- Exactly. Yeah, my other yeah, I was just realizing. And then my other question is, a lot of your work is done virtually. And for me, when I'm helping, especially in parks, um, design for people, I ask them questions like, how do you feel? What kind of smells do you like? What kind of taste? Are there any um, of those that you remember back from Ecuador when you were living there or in the Netherlands that remind you of the warmth of place or the safety of place? Um, smells, taste, any senses you like to have when you're doing these type of work where you're kind of, you know, you're trying to make people comfortable. And so I always think of the senses as a big role to play. Of course. No, well, uh, we, part of the team is here, but part of the team is also there. And as I told you, a lot of the, a lot of the homework is for the children to walk the place, to see how they feel and the nice part is that it's, uh, in terms of census, is that the project is right next to one of the big rivers of the city. And it comes back every time. Like, how do you feel in that place? Well, I felt that the river had this special smell today, you know, or I felt that the river was kind of dangerous today, not in a good mood, but, you know, they give these different moods to the river itself. So it's a key actor of how are we going to to work with it. And uh, it's it's a key, um, yeah. It places you, it's it's like a compass for that, their journey. Exactly, exactly. It's like they know they can walk next to the river and it gives them different experiences also because um they know that people use them for you know go with pets or something so they really um interconnect these and if they uh, got dropped off right in front of the school they wouldn't have that part of their day right exactly yeah and i think it was very nice because we tried to also tell them like we tried in one of the workshops to ask them what are the actors of the place you know Mm. and they were providing different actors like people like the person that sells the sandwiches and the person that cleans up the street and the person that lives in the neighborhood and us and the parents but there were always the pets like the pets were the big actor you know because <laughs> it's the place that the people used to 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 take their pets out and then we also thought, like, yes, this cannot be this anthropocentric. The river has tons of um, uh, frogs, um, different mammals that are only from that area. And recently there was a big fuss, actually, because they wanted to throw part of the river to do, well, not the river itself, but, you know, the, the green area next to the river. They wanted to change it for a bike lane. Wow. And people said, no, in the city, people said, no, you, you take part of the street, but you don't take part of the green area because we have animals living there. 
And the students had this same uh, feeling as well of we are not alone here to decide what we want to do. We have to take into account all these animals that live there, the birds, the frogs, the, yeah. the pets. And so we said, okay, you know what? When we draw the actor and the stakeholder map of the project, we're going to put all these animals there and we're going to put the river there. And I think that gave a whole new perspective to the project to show how you can really um, understand how the way you're connected to the place goes beyond yourself, you know? Yes, so, and I think with it's interesting because the project isn't a park, it's a mobility project. But if you are extending the walking time for a child or a student, all of a sudden there's all these new stakeholders because you're not your goal isn't a car park in front of a venue or dropping the student off right in front of the school. You're paying attention to the journey between and you're yes. giving a better sense of place. And I think that's and, a... and, it, and sorry, and this idea of the senses, right? Sometimes we are like we're thinking smells uh, to touch something, but in this case is an emotion, an emotion that they have have every time they see a pet they are happy so they like that route because they can see many animals and pets so this connection and this emotion that of course comes from the different senses of seeing touching and so on can come from very specific elements you know that we have to keep on these routes that in this case is for instance the river the green area and all the animals that they manage to see on their way and it, it's a very deep different connection you know than walking through the the city itself and this is at the core of the city of course but uh, that shows also the, the the different connection that that um the citizens there can have with nature and yeah and i think they can have to nature it's interesting because we're we're nearing the end of our little conversation here and we went from talking about the rocks and how the students learn to describe the rocks and i feel like when we couple our work with sustainability and nature it just shows that even though it's 2014 and 2021 that children have a deep sense of love and understanding for the world and nature's place in planning yes that often gets overlooked i think um in stakeholder and in design and i really like that from your very first project to your latest one um there's that tie of nature in urban yeah. design, which is totally, well, it wasn't part of our plan, but it just, if you think about it, it's fascinating how in that span that it's all connected and the children are the reminders for us because they're moving at a different pace, right? It, it always comes out. And I think uh, maybe along the way of adulthood, we, we lose that connection to nature, right? But mm. children are very aware of the needs of, are very empathic as well to other beings, which is very important. Um, and, and what you say is completely true. I think that child-friendly cities and sustainable cities definitely go hand in hand. They're a match. We cannot talk, we started with justice, right? But we cannot talk about justice or about sustainability if there is not this intergenerational justice. Like how can we really decide for children in a hundred years, if we are not uh, seeing them as part of the decision making today. So I think that for all the people who is working on sustainability and interested in sustainability, bringing a child to their processes will definitely open their windows to a lot of things that they know, but they have not really seen before in that way. So- Oh, yeah. that's a really- Excellent way to close. So I was going to ask now, learning about all your different projects, um, where can people learn more about your work? Uh, so you can search for our webpage, uh, wasipichanga.com. Maybe it's going to be written somewhere yes, <laughs> so I'll that you it. can look for it. <laughs> uh, and we are on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, um, YouTube. Uh, and also you can look for uh, Placemaking X or Placemaking Europe, Europe Kids and you can find us through there. Um, and yes, feel free, as you, as you heard, <laughs> uh, we are very co-creative and we believe in uh, open source. And so we are always open for collaboration. We'll be happy if someone just reaches out uh, at any point to, to have 
a different talk about how they want to ambition their child-friendly neighborhood or city. Amazing. Um, and having you here today has been really great. Uh, gracias, bedankt, and thank you for showing us about more about intergenerational co-creation and really listening to children's voices in every step of the urban design process. Um, thank you very much. Uh, thank you. I really hope that any of these stories will inspire others to go out to the public space, to start doing something. They will see that children are the first ones to, to ask, to be curious. So don't ever disregard them. Really welcome them because they're bringing more, more to your project than probably uh, you expect. So thank you so much. It was great to know also how much of our work uh, has a match and how we are basically working the same journey. And uh, I really, really appreciate the invitation. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please share with a friend and let's continue to grow and see new ways of playing and connecting in our own cities and across the world. Thank you for listening.